Well, it is really good. It is good. It is good to be back. And I, I want to thank um, Perry and Scott, neither of whom are here right now, um, and all those, all those who stepped in and made sure that the functioning of our fellowship went along smoothly. Um, by all reports, everything went well, and I'm not in the least bit surprised. Really have a good, a good fellowship that we have full confidence in. So I want to say thank you to all. Lots of folks did lots of extra work. Uh, to our text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We only have two chapters left. Um, I was really shocked when I looked back in my notes and I found out when we started this study in the Corinthian letters. We started it in June of last year. So we've been almost a year. Of course, we took some time off in the holidays. We've been almost a year in the Corinthian letters. And I, I really do hope that um, you have found this profitable. I know I have, um, especially 2 Corinthians. Never paid this much attention to 2 Corinthians. So um, I can only say I hope it's been, it's been beneficial. I know a good number of people have communicated that it was. But we've got just two chapters left. And then um, starting the week after that, we will be uh, laying some groundwork for the day of Pentecost. We'll talk more about that uh, when we get there. But you can look forward to that. Um, but let's start with... Verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, and then we're going to skip down after the first five verses and note verse 15. Uh, Paul writes this way, Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And because of the surpassing greatness of revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And then skipping down to verse 15, Paul writes, And I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. A lot in this chapter. A lot of stuff in this chapter that's a little bit different. So um, let's ask the Lord to bless our, our time as we look at it. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, your constant presence in our lives, Father. Sometimes it is so evident, it is so visible, and our hearts are encouraged by it, Father. Other times um, we're kind of left wondering, okay, where's God right now? But we know that you are there. And we know you are always ministering to us. So we pray that you would, by your spirit, minister to our hearts through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it's an unusual portion of scripture, this whole business of somebody being caught up to the third heaven. You know, what's that? And sometimes we're kind of challenged to know what to do with it. Because a lot of times, of course, scripture, it just speaks very immediately, and we understand that, right? We, we sang um, a song this morning, an old hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, sang about the crucifixion, sang about the resurrection. Those things, we know what to do with that. We know that in the crucifixion, we have life. We have forgiveness. We have wholeness. We have access to God. In the resurrection, we have power for, for holy living. 
We have a hope for eternity, eternal life bound up in those things. We're going to talk about the day of Pentecost in a couple of weeks and um, the birth of the church. We know what to do with that. We're sure we have questions, but in general, we know what to do with it. But this business of some guy being caught up in the third heaven, what in the world do I do with that? What's, that, what's the relevance of that to us, to me, right? And he hears unspeakable things. Well, then why are you telling us if you can't tell us, you know? So what do we do with that, right? What do I do with this? And I really am glad that I had the opportunity over three weeks to look at this because, of course, I started, you know, reading this one. It was the next chapter as soon as we left and um, just kept reading it. Lord, what, what's happening here? And I, I think, to be really honest with you, um, where I really think I... I got it, like what to do with it, was Friday. Um, whenever Joyce and I go to Hawaii, at least one day, my brother-in-law and I take motorcycles and go all the way around Oahu. And it was on the backside of Oahu that it happened. So that justifies my motorcycle addiction. <laughs> all I can say. But it was boom. It was just like right there, right? So some of you guys can appreciate that. Um, and what I want to do to, to share about this, this unique chapter this morning is, is really do three, just a couple of quick things. One, take an overview of the chapter. It's really important that we keep this chapter together as a whole because it is a whole. Sometimes we don't do that and we get a little off track. And that'll be quick. And then look at some detail um, at some of the key points. And as we do this, identify as we go through the key points how it speaks to us. That's a little different than what we normally do here. Normally I go through the whole thing and at the end talk about how it speaks to us. A little different this morning. Want to make those, those ap ap points of application as we go. So first thing, what is happening in this chapter? Just a quick summary in case you haven't read it. I really hope you have. It's so much more beneficial. In the first seven verses Paul, that we read, Paul speaks of this person being taken up to heaven. Specifically, the third heaven. And what happened there? That's the first seven verses. And then verses 7 through 10, Paul addresses this issue of the thorn in the flesh. You're probably familiar with something Paul was given to keep him from exalting himself, something that Paul asked the Lord to take away, and at least appears that the Lord did not. That's probably the portion of this chapter that gets the most really serious discussion. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? And then the whole second half of the chapter, from 11 to 21, is Paul applying the first half, the spiritual experience being taken up to heaven, the thorn in the flesh, applying all that to his relationship with the Corinthian church. And that's why I say it's so important to see this, this chapter as a unit and not separate the whole spiritual journey to the third heaven, the thorn in the flesh. Because all of that, Paul's still speaking to the matter of his relationship with the church. All of that is talking about the problems in the relationship and the solving of the problems in the relationship he has with the church. And so that's what the whole second half of the chapter is about. So now let's look at it in some detail. Again, the first seven verses, this matter of being caught up to the third heaven. And some questions kind of naturally crop up. Uh, the first one being, who is Paul talking about here? Because he says, I know a guy. And then he talks about himself. So is it somebody else? But we'll talk about that. And then what is this third heaven thing? Talk about that. And then what about these inexpressible words? Why is he even talking about that? Well, do my best to answer that. First of all, who is Paul talking about? He's talking about himself, right? And we know that because he links the thorn he was given in the flesh down in the seventh verse 
that thorn was given to him, it says in verse 7, specifically because of the overwhelming nature of these visions in order that that would not make him prideful or making him boastful. Well, that would make no sense at all if it was somebody else's spiritual experience that Paul would get a thorn in the flesh. That just doesn't make any sense. So Paul was speaking about himself initially in this strange kind of a third-person way, right? Why was he talking about that way? Well, to be honest, there's a reluctance as we see moving through the chapter, Paul has a reluctance to talk about this. And we'll talk more about that, the importance of that reluctance. The st Paul is stressing in this entire section is the whole thing is not about my spiritual experience. It's about what God is saying through me to you as the church, right? And we'll get, we'll get into more detail that. But Paul is talking about himself. That's really, really clear. Now, as to the third heaven, that's a little more complicated. Uh, you'll, if you do any research at all, you'll find all kinds of crazy, all kinds of explanations, some of them pretty crazy. Uh, the most straightforward one is that when Paul says, and this is the one I happen to think is right, but it's no way to know for sure, um, what, that Paul is talking about heaven in terms of beyond the natural realm. First heaven would be our atmosphere, the clouds, those kind of things we can see in the atmosphere around the earth. And then the second heaven would be the rest of the created universe, outer space, we would say. And then third heaven would be beyond that, the abode of God, the reference to paradise later in the chapter. So that's one way of looking at it. You know, our atmosphere, the rest of the created order, outer space, and then the abode of heaven. A lot of people, though, have a little bit more complicated theory about this, uh, and it grows out of some Hebrew literature, that there were seven levels to heaven. And if you know anybody into Kabbalism or any of that, you may be acquainted with this. There was a lot of Hebrew writing after the close of the Old Testament. Now, we're not talking about stuff in the Old Testament, but from the close of the Old Testament, clear up through the Middle Ages, there was a lot of additional writing uh, among Hebrew scholars that discusses a lot of different things, and one of them is this idea that there are seven levels to heaven. Now, most Orthodox rabbis do not accept that. There are some that do. But among Orthodox scholars, conservative or, or rather um, Orthodox Jewish scholars, they don't accept this, right? Uh, and you will find it in some Bibles. You will find it included in what's called the Apocrypha, uh, some Bibles have this separate section called the Apocrypha, and there's a lot of this literature that's written, and it's very helpful in understanding some cultural things and stuff, but the church traditionally, as well as Orthodox Judaism, does not take it as inspired or authoritative, right? Maybe helpful in understanding some things, but it's not the authoritative word of God. And that's where this idea of seven heavens come up, and Paul only made it as far as the third, if you, if you take that view. So um, the point being... The point being, in this reference, for us at least, in this reference to Paul, or this man he knows, we assume it's Paul, being taken to the third heaven, is that Paul is talking about something real. That's, that's the takeaway for us. Paul is talking about something real. There is nothing in the text that suggests that this reference to a spiritual journey, if you will, which may have included physically transporting himself bodily. He says, I don't know if that happened or not. But everything in the text is spoken as if this experience was real. It's not a figure of speech. It's not a metaphor. It's not a myth. Now, Scripture does have plenty of figures of speech. 
Jesus used figures of speech. Every time he told a parable, he was using a figure of speech. Even those that are firmly granted in reality, like, you know, that guy that goes on a journey and he calls three of his servants and he gives one one talent and one five talents and the other ten. That could happen. That's an entirely reasonable, you know, storyline. But that doesn't mean it actually did. A parable is a figure of speech for communicating. Um, when Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth, he said, you're the salt of the earth. That did not mean they were literally made of salt. It's a figure of speech, right? And, it, and it, there's, even, there's even a full-blown myth in Scripture. You maybe didn't know that. There's one full-blown myth, and that's Jotham's myth in the Old Testament. Jotham tells a story to make a point. But it's clear he's telling a story. It's not a myth that Jotham told it. Jotham told a myth to make a point. And it was understood by his audience he was making a point. All right. So scripture uses the full spectrum of human language. right? But when we read it, we take it at face value as literal unless something in it tells us to take it another way. And there's nothing in this passage that tells us to take Paul's words as anything other than literal. So Paul, this man he speaks of, had some kind of a spiritual experience where he was taken into the third heaven. Point being, spiritual experiences are real. And that does not mean everybody that claims to have one is, saying, is right or is telling the truth or is even of a sound mind. But we don't preclude it either. Spiritual experiences are real. That's the first point. Spiritual experiences happen. They're real. So the second point, second point that comes out of this chapter, again, the first being that Paul had this extraordinary spiritual experience. The second main point I would identify, I would identify is that Paul did not want to talk about it. It was not a subject he brought up. I mean, he says right in the chapter, this happened 14 years ago. This is the first time he's talked about it to them. Paul had spent literally years in communication with the Corinthian church. This is the first time he talks about this. It is not something Paul seemed very excited about. To, and that is why he introduces it in the third-person way. I don't want to talk about this. I have to talk about it. Let's talk about it like it's somebody else. And then he goes on to make it clear it's himself. Um, and he explains why. Verse 1, he says, boasting is necessary, but not profitable. I don't want to be seen as boasting about my spiritual experiences. Verse 6, he refers to kind of speaking as foolishness. Verse 11, he said, I've become foolish, but it's your fault. You made me do it. All right? It's really important to note Paul's reluctance. I think that's an important part of what is being played out in this chapter. Paul's reluctance to talk about it. And I say that because... Just by personal observation, in my own Christian experience, um, I know people, I've met people, um, who I believe have had extraordinary spiritual experiences. But what I've noticed, and I'm talking about people that are, 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 are they're, they're born again, they're spiritually mature, they're, they're people of integrity. I've got no reason to question their honesty. They're people of a sound mind. I have no reason to think they were tripping out. Right? These are people who I have every reason to trust. People who, in the passage of time, I have learned, 
have had some kind of a significant spiritual experience. It's not like in their introduction, hi, I'm Joe, I've been to heaven. It doesn't work that way. What I have observed is that after I have come to know these people, it usually comes up something in passing, like, well, I understand that because, really, there is a natural reticence to talk about these things, right? I've just noticed that, that, that people and believers that have had real significant spiritual experiences of this extraordinary kind of nature, and I'm not, talking, I'm not minimizing spiritual experiences that aren't that extraordinary, that aren't out of the body. I'm not minimizing that, but I'm saying that some people have these extraordinary experiences and they don't talk about it. For one thing, it's too precious to them. It's too holy in their, in, their, in their experience of God. They don't want to make light of it. They don't want to make light traffic of it. There's one person that I talked with about this very subject said, I don't want to cast pearls before swine. This is a very, very precious experience. They're careful. So when I hear somebody speak openly and freely about it, quite frankly, it makes me suspicious. What's the dynamic here? Why are you talking so freely about this experience? What's, what's going on here? Because Paul didn't seem to want to. And there's other biblical passages as well that demonstrate the kind of reticence people typically have when they have these extraordinary, profound spiritual experiences. And, and the first two that come to mind, and I, I'm on my motorcycle when this comes to mind, so I'm praying while I'm navigating Oahu, um, was Moses. Profound spiritual experience, right? He's out in the wilderness. He's tending sheep. I'm sure you know the story. And he is looking for a spiritual experience. No, he's looking for a lost sheep. And he sees a burning bush. And he approaches it because he's curious. There's no indication. You can read the story in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. There's no reason to think that Moses attributed this to anything other than a strange phenomenon. And it's after he goes to look at the strange phenomenon that God introduces himself. The spiritual element, God introduces. Moses, take a clue. Take off your shoes. You do not know what you're dealing with here. And they have, you know, the whole conversation about who is speaking and who's being spoken to and what it means. And the whole thing with the rod and the serpent and Moses running away. This incredible spiritual experience Moses has, right? Now, after that experience, who's the first person Moses goes to? Father-in-law, Jethro. Read it in the next chapter. Doesn't say one word about it to Jethro. Not in what we have recorded. He said, I need to go back to Egypt to talk, check on my people, see how they're doing. And his father-in-law says, fine, go. Now, when he gets back there, he talks to his brother, Aaron. What does he talk to him about? Read the passage. He talks to him about what God told him to say. He talks to him about what God told him to do in terms of miracle. No reference to the burning bush or running away from the snake or any of that stuff. And, when, and most importantly, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, what does he say? He says, let my people go. Period. End of sentence. No mention of any of the supernatural phenomenon. So how it comes to be written down? Maybe Moses wrote it down. But there's, there's, there's this reluctance he has to share the details of that. And then Jonah. Jonah, another story that comes to mind. There's an extraordinary spiritual experience, right? And after he is 
in the belly of the sea creature for three days and puked up on the beach. He travels to Nineveh, and what does he say when he gets to Nineveh? Hey, folks, um, I just spent three days and three nights in the gut of a sea creature. You need to listen to me. No. That is not going to work, right? I mean, how's Nineveh going to react to that? We know what to do with people like you. Lock them up, boys. No. What does Jonah say? 40 days and Nineveh is overthrown. That's it. That's all he says. 40 days and Nineveh is overthrown. And you need to listen to me because I was just in a fish. No. 40 days, Nineveh is overthrown, period, end of sentence. There's a veracity to the word of God. There's a veracity and a power and an authority in the word of God. And it is not necessary to reinforce it with, by the way, this is how my profound spiritual experience validates what I'm saying. No. So there's a natural reticence, I find, when when people have these experiences to share them, and it is certainly not just to ju verify that they're some kind of a spiritual authority. That's the second point. There are extraordinary spiritual experiences, but they're not necessarily to be shared. What is to be shared? God's Word. God's Word. The third point is that when Paul does share it here, he shares it here out of a sense of desperation. Paul has come all the way to the end of the second letter. Now, we know this is actually, we talked about this way back in the introduction. This is actually the fourth letter because there was the first letter, and then there's the second letter, which we have, which is 1 Corinthians, and then there was a letter in the middle, and now we have the fourth. So Paul's been writing them a lot. He's been talking to them about all the problems in the church. He's been trying to encourage them to straighten the issues out, and he's talked about this whole host of issues that we've gone through, and and, and finally, he comes to the, the main issue for him, which is the relationship he has with the church, and the church is simply not yet listening to him. Isn't, isn't it incredible that after all he's had to say, after all the issues the church has dealt with, the immorality and all those things, for him, the core issue is still you're not listening and you're not responding, and that is a crisis. So even though it's not beneficial... I out of necessity, that's that first verse, even though it's not beneficial, out of necessity, I'm going to tell you about my spiritual experience because Corinth, as you know, where they were all into spiritual stuff and spiritual experiences and all that stuff. He said, if you want to talk in those terms, I can talk in those terms. I don't want to. It's foolishness. It's boasting, and there's no profit in boasting. You have driven me to it, he quite literally says in one passage. I have become foolish but then down in verse 15, and that's really, you know, the heart of the chapter isn't the spiritual experience in the first few verses. It's not even the thorn in the flesh, which, by the way, we do not know what that was. I mean, you'll see more print, more ink spent on that than, than you can imagine. We don't know what it was. It was something Paul did not want. It was something that humbled him. And isn't it strange to think of someone of the significance and the spirituality of a man like Paul being deliberately humbled. But Paul accepted that because he realized that in the humbling of his flesh, of his carnal self, which he still was very free about talking about, he understood that God's power would be perfected. It's not about me, he's saying. 
and this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, was simply to make sure that he never forgot that. Even Paul needed that kind of a reminder. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. To know that even Paul needed a reminder, it's not about you, it's about God. It's about his church, right? Paul is desperate. He says in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. That's a Pauline standard. That's a Pauline standard for faithfulness that I find personally very disconcerting because I'm not sure I live up to that. I'm quite confident I don't. And yet Paul could say that. He said, I will gladly be completely emptied of who I am, spent, done, used up, and gone, if it profits you, church in Corinth. I would like to think that as a pastor I'm there, but I do think I know myself well enough to know I'm not. More importantly, I think that speaks to each and every one of us. Again, that's the key point of the entire chapter, to gladly be to gladly spent and be expended for the souls of those around us. I think this is a Pauline standard that doesn't just apply to a pastor. It applies to every believer who has actually come to terms with what salvation is about. I think when we actually come to terms with what salvation is about, which is quite literally the difference between heaven and hell, when you strip everything else away, it's about the difference in the life of an eternal being between heaven and hell. Many years ago, a story was told. It was an eyewitness account uh, back when they used to hang people. You know, in the Old West, they used to hang people. And they were, they were walking a, a condemned prisoner up to the gallows. And as they were going along... They always had a parson there, you know, the guy in the black with the weird hat, right? And the parson was reading some passages from Scripture about heaven and hell. And he got to the place where uh, he was reading about hell and what hell looked like. And as they got to the top of the gallows, the prisoner said, would you stop? Because he said, you're reading this. He said, you're supposed to believe that. And he said... If you actually believed, he said, if I believed that, he said, I would have crawled up these gallows on my knees over broken glass to keep one soul from going there. So if you're not going to read it like you believe it, don't read it. And based on your behavior, I don't think you believe it. That was an unsaved man. But he understood what the issue was, heaven or hell, for an eternal soul. I think every one of us who comes to terms with what salvation is, that equation of heaven or hell, when we look at another human being, our gut response would be, I will gladly spend myself and be expended for your soul. Because I know where I'm going. I'm taken care of. This is where the chapter speaks to me. Am I living my life in such a way that those I have responsibility to and for, those whom God has placed in the simple sphere of my influence, are living in right relationship with God, and if they're not, be willing to do absolutely anything and everything to get them into that right relationship. 
Because if I really believe what I'm reading, I'll live that way. That brings conviction to my heart. And Paul's very frank about that. He ends the chapter this way. We'll wrap it up this way. Paul says in verse 20, For I am afraid. Not much made Paul afraid. Paul was not afraid of much. Not after all he'd been through. Paul said, I am afraid. That perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. And may be found by you not to be what you want. That perhaps there may be strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, that my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over the many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. I will be left before you as one who mourns, Paul says, because you've not heeded the warnings of the word of God. Paul's deeply concerned. The challenges for the church are so great. The threats to the church are so real. The risks are so high. Paul will not hold anything back that might help. I don't want to talk about a spiritual experience. It's too precious to me. I'm deeply concerned about what you Corinthians are going to do with it when I tell you about it. But I'll tell you about it because I'm desperate that you come to the complete and whole saving knowledge. You know, we all know what's going on in our country. We all know what's going on in our culture, how drastically things have changed and are changing. And, you know, so have things in the church. Yeah, I, I don't think, you've probably all heard it, maybe you haven't heard it as often, but uh, when, I remember when I came to Christ, we had expressions like, sold out the whole route. Remember that one? Yeah. We don't hear it anymore. Now I know it's kind of corny, but it's also true. That was the equation of a salvation experience, to be sold out the whole route. It was a goal of, of, of excellence. In a way, it was kind of a prideful radicalism. But now, those, that kind of idea, that's a formula for survival. Because I don't think anything less than that will survive. But it's not found in seeking some kind of profound spiritual experience. If that happens, cool. Be blessed in it, right? You don't have to tell anybody. Just be blessed in it. Where it's found, though, that kind of wholehearted commitment, which is no longer a sense of radicalism but a formula survival, that kind of, of commitment is really found in just doing the basic things consistently. That's really all it is. It's, fine. it's doing the basic stuff of our faith, living our lives according to the clear teachings of the Word of God. Praying for one another. Actually praying when we say we'll pray. That's huge. Caring for one another and actually acting out that care. Worshiping together and ministering to the needs of those who need us, those who need help. It's just the basic stuff. Doing the basic stuff like we really believed it. I remember once, uh, way, back, way back in Bible college, the, the one professor that everybody just absolutely adored, his name was uh, Daniel Pakoda. We called him Doc Pakoda. He was an amazing man of God. And I remember once in, in a class, a student said, Doc, when you go to heaven, what's your first thought going to be? Right? And I'll never forget the moment. I will never forget the moment. He said, I'm going to look around, and I'm going to say, it's real after all. 
Here's the amazing thing that happened, though. It's what happened next. Any number of students were offended by that. The rest of us went, yeah, that'll be me, right? I am deeply concerned by those who were offended by that because I don't think they were being honest. I think they were deluded into a level of confidence that was inevitably going to get them in trouble. And I left that class very deeply concerned. I took pride in the fact that I said, yeah, I'm going to say this. I'm going to react the same way. It's real after all. Because it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for any of us to believe with sufficient conviction to live the way we need to live. It's a challenge to live with sufficient conviction to live the way we need to live. Which should drive us to our knees. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for the Apostle Paul, how he was really honest with the Corinthians. Like, you know, I had this experience, and I really don't want to talk about it, but I will because I have to. And, and I, I really, you guys all know how sick I was or whatever that thorn in the flesh. He was honest enough to say, I'm going to tell you where that came from. God gave it to me because he didn't want me to get all puffed up. And I thank you, Father, for Paul's honesty in saying, if I have to pour myself out completely, Corinthian church, for you, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to go halfway. I will allow myself to be emptied, Lord. Father, I thank you for that, even though it confronts me with a standard that I don't think I'm living up to. Because, Father, it reminds me that I need to look to you in prayer, Father. I need to look to your word, Father. I need to be strengthened every day to live up to the standard, which is for every one of us, Father, to live that sold-out, co-route kind of stuff, Lord. Just doing the basic stuff, Lord. Father, I pray as, as we go through the summer, Lord, and all the activities of the, sem of the summer, the blessed, Father, thing that it is to be in Alaska in the summer, as all that stuff starts importing into our lives, Father, and all the opportunities to be doing stuff, Father, we're going to do it. We're going to embrace life in this marvelous, marvelous part of your earth you've given us to live in, Father, that as we do that, we will not let, let go of those essentials, Father, which keep us on track with you and keep us in a place that we can impact the lives of others. Help us, we pray, Father, to that end. Make us a people of prayer, Father. Keep us on our knees, Lord. Keep us in your word. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.